0: On with the episode. Vibrant. 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 Vibrant Music teaching. Proven and practical tips, strategies, and ideas for music music teachers. teachers. This is the Vibrant Music Teaching Podcast. I'm Nicola Canton, and today we're talking about a teaching toolkit that you can use to help all your students, but especially those neurodiverse students. Lovely teachers. So, first of all, most of our podcast episodes are not sequential. You don't have to listen to the previous one before you listen to the next one. However, in this case, if you are not familiar with the ins and outs of what some of the most common diagnoses mean, so we're going to be talking about dyslexia, ADHD, ASD, and some other things today. If you're not familiar with those or you don't really have an understanding of how they might apply to a piano lesson, I would suggest going back and listening to the previous episode because today is just all about tools. I will use those terms, but I won't really be explaining any of them unless it relates to the tools and and how that's relevant. So you might like to go back to the previous episode, but if you're already familiar or you've already listened, let's fire on. I want to start by talking about something called person-first language. So this is the idea That instead of saying the diagnosis and then the person, you say the person and then the diagnosis. Now, it sounds nitpicky, but bear with me for a second while I give you some examples. First of all, let's talk about how this usually applies. So it's the difference between saying he's an autistic child versus, oh, that child has autism or it's a child with autism. You see how in the first example, it's. The diagnosis is a descriptor of the person, right? It's used as an adjective. In the second example, it's just part of what they are. It implies that it's not all of them. And it actually, I think, is quite important. I think language is important in general. I think we need to be careful, especially as teachers, of how we use our words in general for clarity, for fairness, for all sorts of reasons, And this is just one of those instances where I think taking some extra care over the way we say things can do a lot of good. In case you do think that we're just nitpicking at things and it doesn't really make a difference whether you say autistic student or student with autism or dyslexic student versus student with dyslexia. Let's take it out of these kind of diagnoses and things like that. Let's take it to the physical appearance realm. You probably don't know this about me, but I used to have a pretty strong overbite, meaning my top jaw was very far forward versus my bottom jaw. And for all of my childhood, all the way through my teens, I held my bottom jaw forward actually to disguise it because wasn't my favourite thing about my appearance that my teeth stuck out when my mouth was closed, right? So I, I held my jaw forward, which my orthodontist thought was insane. He'd never heard of that before, but anyway, that's what I was doing. And then eventually I had surgery to correct it. Now that's an aside. But as a child, would I have wanted to be described as overbite girl? I think you can agree that you wouldn't call someone that. No matter how pronounced my overbite was, you would recognize that it was rude to call me overbite girl. However, you might have, under some circumstance where it was relevant, said, oh, that girl has an overbite, right? Or the girl with the overbite, if you needed to refer to it for some reason, if it was relevant to the circumstance. I don't think you would ever call me overbite girl. Or you wouldn't call someone, to take a more extreme or more common example, pimple face. You're not going to call someone pimple girl, are you? Or pimple boy. Sorry, pimples are spots if you're not familiar with that term. Spot boy. Would you call someone that? No. If for some reason you had to point out that they had spots, you would say a boy who has spots if you had to say it. When you take it into that context, you see how much... The way around you say those words shows whether you are defining that person by that thing or you just have to mention it because it's relevant to the situation and you know that there are other things about that person, right? I think it's the same with diagnoses like these. There are other things to a person besides them being dyslexic. They are not just a dyslexic person. They have other things going on bear with me while I talk about one exception because I do think this is interesting and if you think I'm just going too far with this I'll understand you can bear with me and we'll get to the teaching toolkit in a second. But one nuance to this which I think is really interesting comes to me from my mother actually. For most of my life my mum has worked in children's disability services in one way or another. She recently told me that many disabled people prefer that term disabled people versus people with disabilities. We're talking about physical disabilities here. So it is different. It's not really the topic of this episode. But I do think it's interesting to think about how the language affects what we're saying here, because the people who are arguing for the term disabled people are saying that they have been disabled by society, meaning Our built environment is built in a way that disables them. They are not inherently people with disabilities. That's not part of who they are. They have been disabled. So that's one possible exception. I think it's interesting to think about these things. But either way, I think it's useful to think about the person first framework as a way to think about our lessons in general. So that's why I wanted to bring it up today, not just to change maybe how you speak about these things, but also to think about how we structure our lessons. Your students in the piano lesson are people first, piano students second, and yes, maybe dyslexic or maybe have autism or maybe have ADHD third, or maybe way down the list. There may be other things in the way, but it's definitely not first. And I think if we put the person first and just want to help them and want to understand lots of different things about them, we want to understand that they like dinosaurs more than unicorns, that they love maths in school more than they love art class, and that they have this diagnosis of dyslexia. Okay, so that's how I think about it. It's one thing to know about my student. It gives me useful information and guesses about what other things they might like, dislike, have a natural skill for, or find more challenging. When I think about it from that point of view, that's how I've come to this idea of a teaching toolkit being the most useful way to learn, to deal with, not deal with, that sounds a bit negative, but to teach, to help, to assist students who are not neurotypical, as well as all your students, to be honest. So I'm going to give you... Seven different tools. I want you to keep in mind that what we're doing, if you can visualize this, we have these seven tools and any other ones you have in your bag of tricks. And to prepare for a lesson with your neurodiverse student, you're choosing what order to put them into your tool bag in, right? So if you think about layers in your tool bag or in your toolkit, You're putting some of them on that top tier because you think they might be the most useful based on the student's diagnosis and you're putting other ones further down because you think they might be less likely to be useful but they're still there and then this is true for all your students. That top tier has some of your tools in the next tier, and the next tier. And as you get to know your student better, you reorganize that toolkit in your brain so that you reach for the most useful tools to them first, and then try something else if that doesn't work. Let's go through the seven tools and I'll give you suggestions of when they might be most useful at the top tier of your toolkit. The first tool is color. You may have used this to one degree or another to help students learn to read music. You may have students color the intervals. If you haven't done that before, it just means you choose a different color for different intervals and you draw the colored lines between the notes. So if it's a second, it's green and they connect all the seconds with green. And in my studio anyway, if it's a harmonic second, the notes are played together, then we circle it in that color some people also use this for different notes i think that's often less useful but can be useful in some ways or for various different things highlighting dynamics etc etc i make a lot of use of color in my mini musicians program which is our preschool curriculum available inside the membership which is at vibrantmusicteaching.com if you're not familiar mini musicians is a complete curriculum. And we use a lot of color in that as a way to introduce keyboard geography and basic reading skills. So we use little colored paddles that you put on the keys. Students have to place them every time on the correct keys and they start to learn how to navigate the keyboard without the pressure of knowing what C is and where it is. And then we associate those with what we call star songs, which are these, this form of pre-notation that I do. So that's one way of using color. And I found it to be very effective in some other students lessons as well. So some examples of where I found color extra effective tend to be with my students with dyslexia, with students with Down syndrome, which is something we didn't talk about in the last episode. And it's kind of, in a way, a separate category, sort of, but all of these things blend together. I've had a few students with Down syndrome in my studio. Down syndrome is more common in Ireland than in other parts of the world. So you may not come across this as often as I would. But colour is extremely useful for students with Downs because students with Downs often find patterns very difficult visually to recognise. So it takes a long time to get used to the keys. In my experience anyway, they tend to have quite a poor Oral memory, meaning a memory for what they have heard. The ones I've had anyway, and of course this is going to vary, love singing, love music, but don't retain patterns. So when you're doing echoes, that's quite challenging. And so it makes rote teaching quite difficult. Color has been a huge, huge thing for those students. And I use a lot of these same materials that I use with the mini musicians with them. And I actually progress it a bit further and we start to do it two hands together and that kind of thing. So that's color. Now, I would suggest putting that towards the bottom of your toolkit if you're dealing with a student with autism on the autism spectrum or a student with ADHD. Now, the reason I would suggest that is they might get distracted by it rather than it being helpful. But that doesn't mean it's never going to be helpful for them. And of course, you keep it in your toolkit. You just don't put it at the top tier. The second tool is simplicity. So this is kind of the absence of color in a way and the absence of other things as well. This is sort of the reverse. I would find this most useful for students with ADHD, often students with ASD as well, will find simplicity more helpful than having a lot of visual aids. One method I really like for this is Piano Pronto by Jennifer Eklund. That series, it's just reading, it is position-based. It has familiar tunes, though, and very little clutter on the page. It tends to work really well for those students who get distracted by a lot of things going on on the page. I will say again, it is position based and I would be quite wary if your student is also moving slowly the pace at which you go through stuff will vary in all students all the time, right? And don't assume that just because your student has some specific diagnosis that they're gonna go slower. If you have a student with ADHD or autism and they are racing through material, the distraction-free environment of Piano Pronto suits them. I think that's great. If they are going very slow, I have found that position-based playing can be quite harmful down the track Because they do get both of those categories of students, both of those diagnoses tend to mean that they're kids who also get very stuck into things. They get very stuck on the idea that their hand belongs here and that they don't move out of it. You can have trouble moving around the keyboard if they don't do it early on. So just be careful on that front, but it is very useful if you need something with minimal stuff on the page. If you can get away with a little bit more on the page, Piano Safari is also black and white and that can work quite well as well. And it doesn't have that position-based caveat. The next tool in your toolkit is listening. Here I'm talking about teaching through listening first versus the page first. And this should maybe be an obvious thing to do with music, but it's not the way out we often do it, is it? We normally rely on the page a lot And listening kind of as a supplement or sometimes or in this case and that case, but not as a go-to first option. Often this is because we want students to read well and we know that they will tend to fall back on their ear if they have a good ear rather than reading the music. However, we need to think about our goals here because my goal is for this student to feel successful in music and enjoy making it. If that means they have a more gradual development of reading, if that's what's going to bring them the most pleasure and be the most motivating and give them the most success, that's fine with me. It's fine with me if they never read, although I don't want to close that off from any student and assume they can't read just because of some diagnosis. I am open to the fact that maybe it won't suit them, and that's fine. Where working on listening first and playing by ear a lot can be most helpful, I've found, A lot of students with ADHD, I've found, work very well like this. They really hone in on the ear playing aspect and also the rote teaching aspect. With students with dyslexia, I've found many of them have an excellent oral memory. As with everything, this will vary, but many of my students with dyslexia have had really good recall for sound. And so they love learning by ear and by rote because it feels really easy to them or really kind of a fluent experience one useful tool for this for learning through listening first is rote repertoire by samantha coates so these are pieces that are available in three levels they're designed to be taught by rote and then the notation to be put up so that you can refer back to the patterns and start to learn reading through rote playing so they're really unique in that way as well as with the three levels and i found them to be very motivating And really good for that gradual introduction of reading. If that's the route you need to go with your student. Our next tool is sensation. (laughs) This is about the sense of touch really is what I'm talking about here. And I think it's something we need to be open to with many of our students with any kind of diagnosis. Because as we talked about on the last episode, they will often have lower levels of fine motor skills versus other students at their age. And because of that and the coordination challenges that go along with playing piano, sensation can be really useful. Now, I know this might still be challenging depending on the COVID situation where you are and when you're listening to this, but when you can get back into this sense of touch, I think it's really useful. So one way you can use this is having your student go for a ride on your hand, meaning you play a piece they put their hands on top of your hands so they can feel what it feels like to play that. One no-touch version of this or way to work on sensation and make learning easier in this way is to tap pieces out before you play them on the piano. So literally tapping the correct fingers on a tabletop or on the closed piano lid before you play a piece. And keep your mind open for other ways that you could give students the sense of touch and how it feels to play the piece before they actually go to play it. Because as we also talked about last week, these students can often be underconfident. So going to the piano when you're not fully prepared, trying to play a piece, and it not going well right away, can be ultra frustrating for these students. And so we need to try and scaffold the learning really carefully so that that doesn't happen, so that they always feel successful and like they can do it. Tool number five is rhymes and words, depending on how verbal your student is and how focused they are on language, this can be more or less useful. So you can use rhymes to remember things and little chants for rhythms and lyrics to go along with songs. I find this to be very useful for often students with dyslexia, although they will need help remembering it, so I would record the sound of us saying it like just record a little voice memo and attach it to their assignment if you're using a digital assignment system you can do that quite easily or send it to their parents so they can listen together at home or send their parent the words or write them down for them so their parent can say them with them at home if if reading is a challenge. This can be very useful for students with dyslexia sometimes students with down syndrome as well although I have had Several students with Downs who are not very verbal, so that wouldn't work for them. But if they are, sometimes that can be helpful. Also, students with ADHD, this can help them really tune into something and stay on task if they have to speak at the same time. But others will find it challenging to do both at the same time. So you might want to speak it and then play it separately. As with everything, not all students, but many students with ASD, autism, autism, Spectrum disorder, um, many of them will not find this helpful and might find it quite grating. (laughs) It depends on every kid, but they tend to be less focused on the verbal. So this would be one I put on the bottom tier in my toolkit if I'm heading into a lesson with a new student with ASD. And then if I discover that they love chatting and they love chanting rhythms and they love singing, then it goes right at the top of the toolkit again. Tool number six is clear or rude directions. You may have heard this advice previously if you've looked up any things about teaching students, teaching neurodiverse students, but it is really important to give extremely clear directions. And it might be to the point of it feeling quite rude to you. So what I mean by this is instead of saying, can you play such and such for me? You just say, play such and such play sonatina. You might feel like you're being abrupt at first, but once you get used to it, you realize you're just being clear and you're helping them to navigate the lesson. It's also really helpful to just cut out any extra things. So never two steps at the same time. You're never saying, play the sonatina, do the last line two times or something. like. There's never two parts to the instructions you give. And this is something that is useful for every student, honestly. You need to be extra aware of it if you have a student with ADHD or ASD especially, but with pretty much every student, maybe aside from your adults who might feel like you're being a bit abrupt, it is actually more helpful and you're doing more harm than good by using all this fluffy language and politeness that we tend to put into our speech. And then the final tool, in my list, but it's definitely not the last one you could possibly put in your toolkit, is pacing. So you're gonna wanna play around with pacing in your lessons to find out how your student learns best. You can make things move faster, as in switch tasks more often, or you can make things move a bit slower if that's what your student needs. A good example of how nuanced this is, is a student with ADHD. So many students with ADHD do need to change tasks quite often in order to stay engaged with the task. But I'd say an equal number will find that really difficult because their main challenge is switching tasks. So you're going to do better with those students if you actually get them engaged with a task and really give them time to absorb it and then do the next thing. Yes, this is not the most efficient learning style and you may have heard me talk about interleaved teaching before, but for these students that's going to do more harm than good because they're going to feel so disconcerted by switching tasks so often. Definitely something to play around with in terms of how long you spend on each thing, how often you switch tasks, and how you repeat things throughout the lesson. (music) Your one thing this week is to consider which of these tools is currently not in your toolkit or not on the correct tier of your toolkit and work to add it in this week. So I hope this view of looking at a teaching toolkit and putting things on different layers of it gives you a new perspective on how we think about helping all of our students succeed and how we understand different diagnoses in the piano studio. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. Please come find me on Instagram, we're at Keys, or leave a comment on the article that goes along with this episode. I'll see you back here next week. One of the awesome benefits for Vibrant Music Teaching members is that they get an exclusive member magazine every month. This magazine brings together our blog articles in a way that is digestible and super actionable. If you want to become a member and get the magazine as well as all the other benefits, you can go to vmt.ninja to sign up.